I couldn't be more excited about the opportunity zones. I think there's going to be over $100 billion of private capital that will be invested in opportunity zones. That's U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin speaking at the Hills Newsmaker Series in September. There are many, many attractive places to invest all across the country. This will unlock lots of capital that was tied up that never would have been sold to reinvest in these communities. Mnuchin was referring to a program established as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. In a nutshell, it provides tax incentives for investors to reinvest unrealized capital gains into approved opportunity zones. To date, some 8,700 of these zones have been designated across the country in low-income communities with the hope that they'll help underserved populations. It has a lot of investors excited, but it remains clouded by some uncertainty. So does the program live up to the hype? What firms are best positioned to take advantage of it? And what pitfalls should investors be aware of? Today, we'll dive into these questions with several experts who are exploring opportunity zones from different angles. I'm Lisa Fu, a reporter with PERE, and this is the PEI Podcast. Let's start with the basics. What tax benefits are available to Opportunity Zone investors? Mike Bernier from Ernst & Young will walk us through an example. He's a partner in EY's national tax practice and heads the firm's efforts around Opportunity Zones. So let's, for this example, say that you've got someone that sells $10 million worth of stock and they have an $8 million basis. They would have a $2 million gain. Normally, if they sold that stock now, they would have $2 million of gain to put on their tax return. What happens is they would have 180 days from the date of the sale to roll over that investment into a qualified opportunity zone fund. If they do that, they immediately accrue sort of two benefits. The first is they don't need to include that income on their tax return. And second, if they hold it for a certain period of time, they will get to reduce the amount of gain they ultimately need to include. That qualified opportunity zone fund then turns around and deploys that money into qualified investments. There's a number of different criteria, but the main one is they need to be located in these opportunity zones. From that point, the fund operates much like a regular fund would. It makes investments, rents out its properties, or operates its businesses, and pays tax like it normally would. What's going to happen, though, is if the investor holds on to his interest in the fund for 10 years, he'll then accrue the third benefit, which is when he sells his fund interest, he doesn't pay any tax on exit. So he gets to take all of the appreciation in that fund tax-free. So to clarify, the tax on the original capital gains that were invested into the fund will be deferred until 2026. It's the appreciation of the assets that's totally exempt from taxes when you hold the investment for 10 years before exiting. Let's say you want to invest $2 million in capital gains. If five years have passed between when you put the money in the fund, you reduce your gain by 10%. So instead of recognizing $2 million of income on that tax return, you're going to recognize 1.8. If seven years have passed, then you reduce it by 15%. So you would recognize $1.7 million of gain, and you'd pay tax on that at whatever the rates are at that particular point in time. So let's say after 10 years, that asset you bought for $2 million has appreciated to $5 million. That $3 million appreciation is now completely tax-free. But you would still pay taxes on $1.7 million of the original $2 million capital gain because the biggest discount you could get on that gain is 15%. Given these capital gains tax benefits, the typical investor so far has been high net worth individuals and family offices. 
On the investment management side, there doesn't seem to be any singular profile. Institutional real estate investment managers, real estate developers, mom and pop shops, and first-time real estate investment managers have all shown an interest in the program. However, certain skills will be needed to make these opportunity investments work. So I think the first you know, major skill set is the fundraising. So these are different type of investors. And because the investors only have 180 days to roll their money over from when they have a gain, you're going to have a different fundraising process, right? Normally you'd go out, you might have 12, 18 months of roadshows, you get commitments, people put their money in in the future. Now somebody sells their stock, gets that gain, they have 180 days from then. So if you show up, you know, four months into it, they only have two months left to decide where to put their funds, right? So it's a different type of investment raise. After getting that check from the investor, a manager has six months to spend the money or commit the capital to a specific investment. The manager must have a budget and schedule that it could execute on for the investment to be considered specific enough to grant the capital safe harbor status. And spending that check is the next challenge. With an array of potential assets to buy, deployment can be tricky. So you're looking at these assets that are in these zones, and what that tends to mean is you're going to have different types of assets, right? Not all of the zones are going to sort of be appropriate for you to build a 40-story skyscraper, right? And so from that perspective, you're looking at maybe different ticket sizes. Because of a rule in the legislation, projects are likely to skew towards ground-up development or opportunistic investments. According to the rule, investment managers need to create a new building or substantially improve an acquired asset. Meaning, a manager that bought a $3 million asset will have to spend another $3 million on renovations for the property to be considered an opportunity zone investment. Lastly, once that's done, a manager will need the skills and experience to pull the exit off. Traditionally, if I have a real estate fund, I would sell you know, one piece of real estate, return some capital, sell a second piece of real estate, and then eventually the fund sort of is fully sold off and the money's fully returned to the investors. The way this program works, and this is something people often overlook, is that the step-up occurs when you sell your fund. A step-up in basis reduces one's capital gains tax. So if you sell an underlying asset, you're paying the tax bill unless it's reinvested. And so you really have to think about what's the exit. Different people are thinking about different strategies. One thing we're seeing in the market is, is, is that's pushing people to, I'll say, single asset funds. Because when you do a single asset fund, then you bring in somebody buys the whole fund, and now they own the whole building. As opposed to a multi-asset fund where I have to go find somebody that wants part of or all of the entire portfolio. Coming up with a way to fundraise, deploy, and exit, all while meeting the legislation's requirements can be hard. But with these tax incentives, there are plenty of interested parties, and some have already stepped up to take on the challenge. Shorewood Real Estate Group, a real estate investment and development firm largely operating in the New York metropolitan area, is one of the first movers in the field. Shorewood got lucky. A year and a half ago, even before the Opportunity Zone legislation was released, it had turned its eyes to the affordable housing space in the outer boroughs of New York. Larry Davis, Shorewood's president and chief executive, later found out that the workforce housing investment he wanted to make would be in a designated opportunity zone. So we had already targeted Jamaica as a submarket we were interested in investing in, and then along came opportunity zone. So as I, I like to say, opportunity zone can't make a bad deal good, but it can take a good deal and make it better. And really, that's been our experience. So when we learned of the Opportunity Zone at the end of last year, when it became law, we started exploring it. And we really adopted a kind of a first mover strategy 
in that a lot of people have been waiting on the sidelines for regulations to come forward to be put by Treasury, IRS. But we felt that the program had a lot of merit and that the regulations would follow. So we acquired the Jamaica site in August of this year, a full two months before the regulations came out, with the goal of constructing a 300-unit multifamily project with some retail on the ground floor in that location. Shorewood is one of the few groups in the country with an Opportunity Zone project already under development, and the firm has a pipeline of other such investments to come. The firm, which is taking a one-asset-per-fund approach, used its own money for the initial acquisitions. Now that the regulations are out, it's out raising more equity for the existing funds to finance the projects. There are a number of structural issues in the legislation to craft a large commingled fund. So we have embarked on a strategy of doing single-asset projects. They're called funds because fund is the word in the legislation, but actually they're they're standalone projects. They're of a significant scale. Our Jamaica project is $150 million. Uh, The second project, which we're about to sign up, is in Jersey City, also about $150 million. So you're talking about 50 to $60 million of equity at a pop, not insignificant, just on a single raise. Our view and the view of our advisors and consultants is that our strategy, particularly being a sponsor developer of doing it this way on a project-by-project basis, is the way to go. Opportunity Zone funds must show that 90% of their assets are invested in Opportunity Zone properties or businesses every six months. So a manager with a large traditional commingled fund will have the challenge of timing all the capital calls and investments into projects to meet this requirement. Though timing the capital calls for these Opportunity Zone funds might be a challenge for investment managers in the space, drumming up enthusiasm won't be. I think because of the tax advantages, the after-tax returns are going to be substantially higher. I think that's why people are so excited and attracted to it. Because the returns, again, you're talking about after-tax returns over a 10-year period. You know, traditionally, real estate tends to, you know, it's kind of a three- to seven-year holding period. So the returns may be higher, but you're getting it over less years. So here you're getting perhaps what might be a slightly lower IRR, but you're getting it over a longer period of time. And if it's held for an excess of 10 years, that's an after-tax return, which may effectively be almost double of what a pre-tax return would be, depending on where you live and you know, federal and state taxes. These potential after-tax returns can be very tempting for family offices in particular. I'm DJ Van Curen, Vice President for the Heyman Family Office. Van Curen, who also authored the book Real Estate Investing for Family Offices and founded the Family Office Real Estate Institute, has seen a lot of interest from family offices. Because one of the biggest things you want to do as a family is, I mean, you've got a lot of money. You don't want to pay taxes. You know, if you've got $2 million of capital gains or a $1 million of capital gains, and instead of writing Uncle Sam a check for a million, you're effectively taking that million and playing with truly the house's money, the government money, to say, okay, what are we going to turn that million dollars into? I think they're also trying to incentivize a lot of these companies that have had monies overseas and try to get that money brought back into the U.S. to be put into the U.S. economy so they can sort of not pay those taxes, right, on capital gains. So I think that, you know, even though it shouldn't be, I think that the the tax benefit is driving a lot of these families and their level of interest to want to do something. And so... That's why the demand is rather large. I mean, I've heard of funds that say they've circled 200 million that 
they have an interest in. I've got known an attorney down in Atlanta. He's like, we're getting asked all the time. They want us to start a fund. For family offices already active in the increasingly popular impact investing space, the legislation's objective of helping underserved communities while also boosting private investments acts as an added bonus. You know, one of the big keywords uh, that's been going around family offices for about the last year or so has really been impact investing. The first generation, the people that are 70s, 80s, etc. Look, you got to go out, you get to maximize your return for your dollar, right? Because that's what you did on your business. You're trying to maximize everything. The millennials, however, are more with the feel good about let's make an impact. Things are moving in that direction. And the, the one thing I will say is that if you could get a certain return as an impact and philanthropic, and you could get that same return and not being philanthropic, well, they'll take the philanthropic all day. So I think it, it depends on, you know, the family. But once again, it's the younger generations that are really pushing that in that direction. However, the legislation doesn't lay down any rules about measuring or reporting social impact in these opportunity zone communities. So it will be on the investors to hold their investment managers accountable for doing good while capturing returns. On the manager side, firms may want to think about volunteering social impact metrics to make a better pitch to investors. With the tax benefits and potential to help communities at the same time, the Opportunity Zone program may seem like a pretty sweet deal. Still, not everyone is getting on board right away. Will Strong, the CFO and COO of Virtus Real Estate Capital, says his firm isn't looking to pursue a strategy in the program at the moment. This is because of all the uncertainties that still remain. When you think about Opportunity Zones, there are about 8,760 of them across the country. So large, large number. A lot of the Opportunity Zones are underserved in housing, certainly affordable housing. They're underserved in senior living. They're underserved in medical office. We think that's, that creates a big opportunity. But the two biggest issues we have with Opportunity Zones are, one, partly tax. This is a very tax-driven strategy, Opportunity Zones in and of themselves. So with that, would need to come extraordinarily clear and concise and really thought out and tested language in the tax laws. And we just don't have that at this point. The legislation at this point is pretty broad, and many in the industry are awaiting more guidelines to be released by the IRS and Treasury Department. It's still unclear what constitutes a quote-unquote reasonable period in which a fund could reinvest proceeds from the sale of qualifying assets without facing a penalty, and whether there are any tax consequences to the gains that a qualified Opportunity Zone fund reinvests. Another issue, Strong says, is that the last U.S. Census was taken in 2010, and that data was used to set a lot of the Opportunity Zones. Since then, much of that information has become outdated. For instance, in Austin, Texas, where his firm is based, some areas that were struggling 10 years ago are now some of the hottest real estate markets in the city. So we think that given the old data that was used and a lot of the tax challenges, it makes it really difficult to plan a long-term investment. Because after all, these opportunity zones are only advantageous from a tax standpoint over seven to 10 years. You get the full benefit after 10 years. So it's a very long-term investment, which in and of itself does create some issues for individual or even institutional investors on that long of a time horizon, certainly individual investors. And then coupled with the non-tested and sometimes unclear tax language, we think that at this point, it makes sense to sit on the sidelines, do research, and not invest in opportunity zones just for the sake of the tax benefit. Of course, there will be some investment managers that pitch less than sound strategies and reel in investors with promised tax benefits. As one source said, 
It's free money for investment managers. That's why investors looking to commit capital need to take their time and really look into the investment strategy, whether that's through their own resources or outsourcing. Problem with family offices, a lot of single family offices, they don't have the people in place in order to do the due diligence and do the research that's needed to really understand what they're investing into. That's DJ Van Curen again. And it's no fault of their own because they might be worth $400, $500 million, but they spent the last 40 years building this chemical business, right? So they don't understand private equity. They don't understand real estate. They don't understand hedge funds. This is a whole new world to them. And so a lot of those private equity investments that families made, I think it's going to come back. They're going to realize that these weren't the best investments because I really didn't understand it. And they're going to ultimately move back into funds. And I think that a lot of these investments into these opportunity zones, it's going to be the exact same thing. Just because it's an opportunity zone doesn't mean that there's a demand. Investment managers that want to succeed need to give investors fundamentally sound strategies. They have to pinpoint who the tenants will be and where the demand is coming from. EY's Mike Bernier says one of the best ways to do that is to open up communication between the local governments and investment managers. We have seen a couple of instances where uh, municipalities are going out and sort of going to asset managers and saying, hey, we've got these 10 buildable lots. Here's who's owned them. Here's how they're zoned. Trying to kind of make those connections and expedite it, right? Because I think a lot of this comes down to if I've got the money and I've got six months to deploy it, if you can find a project that gets me my return... I'm going to pick it, right? I'm not necessarily shopping from 40 different projects to find the exact very best one. I've got six months, right? As soon as I can find a good one, I'm sort of moving on to the next thing. So we are seeing people work at that. I would say fewer than probably should be. A lot of the municipalities are really trying to figure out how to make this work, and they're trying to get up to speed on the program and sort of work their way through it. Larry Davis from Shorewood Real Estate Group says reaching out to the community and its government is just part of doing due diligence. We've gotten involved with the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation, which is a public-private partnership committed to redeveloping and revitalizing the downtown of Jamaica, and they seem really thrilled that we're providing housing in an area that really needs it. When we were doing our due diligence, we reached out. They are an incredible resource. Hope Knight, who's the president of that organization, has worked in Harlem doing the same thing for 12 years, and she understands the dynamics of the community, the political issues there, as well as the need for private capital to make returns, and she is trying to balance all of those constituencies and does so quite adeptly. So really, we went to them as we were, as I said, we were performing our due diligence and asked them, you know, what do you feel the community needs? We're thinking of doing this. What are your thoughts about it? And they're really providing us with a tremendous resource and background of knowledge as we become more familiar and more engaged with a community that heretofore we had not been involved with. There's plenty of promise for Opportunity Zone investments, but as DJ Van Curen says, make sure you do your research before you jump. The Opportunity Zones are a great opportunity. You have to make sure that you stay to the fundamentals of the project itself, the operator, the GP. You have to go through that whole due diligence process you know, don't let the the tax component of it lead the deal because, like I said before, a bad investment is still a bad investment. I think continue to try to stay on top of any of the changes that are coming, making sure you have a very good understanding and, you know, work with your advisors or whatnot because it can be 
significantly beneficial for families. And I think that not only outside the real estate, look at what the private equity could do. You know, if you were a manufacturer and you picked up and you moved your business and now you're doing it in that certain area, you know, that could be a great opportunity as well. Just be a little wary and do your research before you jump. That's the biggest thing I would say. That's all for today's episode. If you want to read more, you can check out the links below this podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the PEI podcast.